Good morning, everybody. Grab your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 6. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, If you're able, please stand. We're into Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one of these blue hardback Bibles all throughout the room. Grab a Bible in this blue Bible. You can turn to page 1163. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, and we are getting dangerously close to finishing the book of Ephesians. So with that in mind, friend, hear the word of the Lord to us. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. I'd love for everybody to have a a copy of God's word out in front of them. Hear what St. Paul writes. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray together? Father, we thank you for the strength that your word and your Holy Spirit gives us. Lord, we pray that we would have ears to hear everything that your word has to say to us. And Lord, would you strengthen us for the good fight? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, congratulations, everybody. We have made it to the end of our series on Ephesians, pretty much. I'm going to say that because in our passage right there, notice in verse 10, what does Paul say? Finally. But does actually the book of Ephesians end in this passage? No, because Paul's a good preacher and he never knows when to finish. He keeps going for a couple more verses, verses 21 through 24, which Pastor Richard will be preaching about on Christmas morning, a week from now. But functionally, friends, you and I have finished our series today on the book of Ephesians. So raise your hand if you were with us at the very beginning when we started this series on Ephesians. Great job. You know, uh, did you know your brain releases this thing called dopamine whenever you complete a task? This is why you love like having a to-do list where you can check things off because it actually makes you feel better when you get something done. So guess what? You did it. You done good. You finished Ephesians. Well, you will in about 20 or so minutes. Great job. And friends, what I want you to see in this book of Ephesians is look down at verses 10 through 20. This is basically Paul's crescendo, right? Like a a classic letter during this time, Paul finishes with a flourish and he uses new imagery, right? He uses sort of a rousing image of a soldier being equipped for battle. And sort of this is his final teachings of Ephesians. But notice that really this comes at the end of the second half of Ephesians. So if you've been with us, you may vaguely remember 
that I suggested to you that the first three chapters of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, those first three chapters deal with the gospel of grace, that you and I were sinners, but now we are raised to new life by faith, and we are saved not by righteous deeds, but by what? God's grace through faith. And of course, in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, we learn the message that Jesus Christ is God come in human form. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross for our sins. And on the third day, he was raised by the Holy Spirit. And now, according to Ephesians, he is reigning over all things, having disarmed the rulers and the principalities, right? He is seated above every name, above the quote-unquote rulers and authorities in this world. Uh, That's Paul's way of saying that Jesus is victorious over all things, even the demonic forces of our world. Now, if you were to say, okay, what does that actually mean, that message of Jesus Christ? What does the gospel actually do in my life? What am I supposed to do in response to it? Well, that's what Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are all about. That's why if you look down at Ephesians 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6, it's so practical. Uh, Chapter 4 is how do we live in relation to other Christians? How do we put off the old way of life and put on a new way of life? How do we live in a dark world? How do we love our wives and our husbands, our kids? How do we treat our parents? How do we treat our employees? How do we view our bosses? See, this is Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. It's the practicals. It's how do Christians live day to day. And what I want to suggest to you, if you write notes in your Bible, I would write this in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. In our passage this morning, Paul is explaining how you and I as Christians live in relation to the demonic forces of this world, the evil forces, the devil himself, I don't know if you know this, but you and I live in an enchanted world. Did you know that? I think part of why people have lost faith is because they've lost that we live in an enchanted world, that it's not just the material. There's also a spiritual dynamic to life. There's a wonderful book called Hunting Magic Eels that goes into this. But really what I want to suggest to you, if you can believe it, is that you and I live in an enchanted world. What I mean by that is there is a spiritual component to life and there's also the physical and the material. But just because you and I can't see the spiritual world, doesn't mean it's not there. You and I, in fact, we ourselves are part of the spiritual world. But of course, if you study the teachings of Jesus, you'll know that Jesus teaches us that there is such a thing as the devil. And there are demonic forces, there are demons, there's rulers, there's all of these principalities. So how do we live as Christians in relation to the fact that you and I live in an enchanted world? Well, look what Paul says in verse 10. It's the whole summary of this section. He's rousing the church in Ephesus, right? The church that he planted years ago. And he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So how do we become strong Christians? What does that mean for us to be strengthened in God's strength, right? Well, it doesn't mean that we trust in our righteousness or our own good deeds. What it means is we're strengthened in the Lord. But how do we become strong in the Lord? What does that even mean? Well, by way of an analogy, think of it this way. If you, anybody set a goal every January 1st to get stronger and healthier every year, how do you become stronger? What might things you do? Well, what could you do if I said, be strong, what would you do? You'd probably start eating healthier, right? And you'd probably eat a lot of protein. You know, you'd you know, make a little like smoothie of just like pure protein, protein and just drink it down every morning to get big biceps, you know, and you may get a gym membership and then you may, you know, tell people what I want for Christmas. I want weights, right? We know how to be strong. We know what we could do to grow our strong bodies, right? But do you know how to grow strong in your soul? 
Do you know how to be strengthened in your inner being? How to be a stronger Christian man, a stronger Christian woman? It's not a matter of your physical biceps. There's an inner strength that Christians are called to develop. And it takes work and practice, just like lifting weights is a discipline. Growing strong in the Lord is something that we have to discipline ourselves to do and to believe. So how do we do this? How do we become strong? Look at verse 10. Be strong, Christian, in the strength of his might. How do we do that? Well, this whole passage is going to explain how. And the first step, and this is an important step, in being strong in the Lord is understanding rightly who our enemy is. You know, Paul's using this metaphor of the good fight, right? We're in this spiritual war. We're in this battle for our souls. And what he's going to say is we need to recognize who our enemy is, and it's just as important to understand, Christian, who our enemy is not. Paul will say that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? Evil forces in this world. You see, what Paul's suggesting in the gospel is that what divides humanity is not racial lines, it is not Jew or Gentile, it's not slave or free, it is neither rich nor poor, it is neither male nor female. The battle that you and I fight is not against other people groups or people with a different skin color, it's against the evil forces that you and I can't even see that are behind so much conflict in this world. So who is the battle against? Well, let me put a name to it, it's the devil and all of the evil demonic forces that are subject to his rule. Okay, so that begs the question, did you just say, Dustin, that you believe in the devil? <laughs> you believe in demonic forces? Haven't we gotten past that in our modern world? I mean, how, you know, uh, you know uh, what Cro-Magnon man of you to believe in the devil? I mean, in that like woo-woo, you know what woo-woo means? You know, you've met woo-woo people. You know, you're about to see some of them next week. You know, isn't this all woo-woo? Well, what I want to suggest to you, uh, friend, if you can just step back for a second, um, what I would suggest to you is that we, we know we live in an enchanted world. Even people who don't believe in Jesus know that there's something more than just the physical world that you and I see. You know, as a pastor, I've had strange privileges and cool privileges, and some of the stranger privileges are when people come to me over the years and ask me, what do you think I saw when I saw the ghost of a little revolutionary boy, boy in Charleston, South Carolina? Or what do you think happened to me when this and this and this happened to me? Or what happens when I think I see actual demonic activity at work? Well, friends, what I want to suggest to you is that even people who aren't Christians, they believe and they know intuitively that there's something more to life than just the physical. And in fact, it's as personal as you are. Even if you're not a Christian right now, think about it this way. If I pulled you apart limb by limb, atom by atom, <laughs> molecule by molecule, where would your soul be? Is it, in, is it physically in you? Well, yes, but also no. If you were to lose your arms and your legs and your nose, would you still be you? Yes. Right? So there's a link between your body and your soul, but you're not bound by your body. Your soul exists in the spiritual realm on some profound level. It's not just the collection of your body parts. In fact, C.S. Lewis says in the screw tape letters, maybe this is why Satan hates us so much is because we're like half-breeds. Right? There's a salty term for you, half-breeds. Because we're both physical, but we're also spiritual beings. We exist in sort of both of these worlds. There's a spiritual component to you. There's your soul. And then there's your physical body. They're linked. 
but they're not the same thing. Even if you were pulled apart, friend, atom by atom, your soul would still be there. Your soul would not be found under a microscope. You know, but this sounds strange that we believe in the spiritual realm, but, you know, um, it really doesn't because, you know, uh, one of the things that I find interesting as a pastor is looking at surveys to see how Americans believe about certain things. So every two years, Ligonier Ministries does this thing called the state of theology where they interview Christians and ask them what they believe. I also think it's fun to read articles by like the Gallup poll or the Barna Research Group to find out what people believe. And, uh, you, know, um, you know, we may think that modern people don't believe in like the woo-woo, the weird, the spiritual, uh, but actually the exact opposite is true true. Um, as Christians increasingly stop believing in a spiritual world, non-Christians are increasingly believing in a, another world. Uh, actually, Gallup poll showed last year that 41% of Americans, 41% of Americans believe in UFOs being spacecraft from aliens. <laughs> 41. What that means, another way of looking at it, is that means that there are more people who believe in alien spacecraft in America today than there are in people who believe in orthodox biblical Christianity. You're more likely to believe in aliens than you are to believe that Jesus actually is the son of God. It's another way of looking at it. And don't y'all don't even get me started on Bigfoot. <laughs> you know where people are most likely to believe in Bigfoot? The Pacific Northwest. I know I sound bonkers. Uh, I know I sound bonkers to some people when I say I do believe in the devil, but you'll never not convince me. I have seen demonic things firsthand. I will testify. I'll go, I'll go to the day I die believing and knowing that there is a spiritual realm. And even if you don't see anything dark and twisted, your soul is proof in and of itself. Uh, if you believe we're just ma mere material, right? Where are you deriving human rights from? You know, this is, this is the inconsistency of the modern mind. We're all just the result of evolution. We're all just the result of matter. Therefore, women's rights. When the world, how does that tie those two things together for me? If we're all just space dust, where are you deriving human rights from? Unless there's something indelible in the soul of every human. It sounds funny to believe in this stuff, but um, I think the best reason I can give is um, something from Antonin Scalia. Uh, he's the late Supreme Court justice. I'm not endorsing, you know, necessarily the way that he voted on things, but I do think it's helpful to, to go back and review his interview with New York Magazine. In, in 2013, Antonin Scalia famously gave this interview uh, with this lady interviewing him, and uh, he starts talking about what he personally believes. And he says, trigger warning, Scalia says he believes in heaven and hell. And she's like, what? You believe in that? And he's like, yeah, I'm a Christian. We all do. And then he whispers, and I even believe in the devil. To which the interviewer, she goes, you do? <laughs> you believe that? I love his answer. He says, you're looking at me as though I'm weird. My God, are you so out of touch with most of America, most of which believes in the devil? I mean, Jesus Christ believed in the devil. <laughs> That's my favorite quote of Scalia. Jesus Christ believed in the devil, right? It's in the gospels. You travel in circles that are so, so removed from mainstream America that you are appalled that anybody would believe in the devil. Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in the devil. I love that answer. Now, what I'm suggesting to you, friends, is that the Bible presents a spiritual realm of which your soul is a part, but there are also all these forces. 
Uh, there's evil forces and there's good forces. Uh, God and Satan are not equals. God is far above everything in creation. But the Bible presents this as reality. And experientially, many of us have experienced both the good and the bad of the spiritual realm. But notice, friends, that Paul just assumes that we all kind of know this. He doesn't try to explain who the authorities or the cosmic powers are. He's just saying that those are all realities. So the danger uh, that you and I fall into, or according to C.S. Lewis, uh, the way he would say is we, you know, people fall into sort of two dangers when it comes to studying the spiritual realm. In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis says there are two equal and opposite errors into which people fall into about the demonic world. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other error is to believe and have an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. You know? You know, this is why he says some people, they want to use Ouija boards and they want to do astrology. They want to do summonings. They want to think about it all the time. But friends, there, there is no set of like playing cards that the Bible gives where it says, this is a cosmic force. This is a ruler. This is authority. And you can read all about it on the back of the playing card. The Bible says those are real, but not to be obsessed with them, to know that it's there, but not to have an unhealthy interest. So, um, Yes, I believe in the spiritual realm. I believe it because, as Scalia points out, Jesus believes in it. And also experientially, many of us have seen it firsthand. But notice that Paul's point, why is he bringing up the spiritual realm? Why is he even bringing this up? Why is this like the end thought of Ephesians? And I think you gotta, you gotta track with sort of Paul's logic here, okay? If you were living in Paul's day, the great divide between all people is around one, one racial line, if you were listening to Paul and you were like St. Paul, what is the dividing wall between all people? Is it black and white? Was that the racial lines in Paul's day? No, it was not between black and white. It was what? It was between Jews and Gentiles. And if you were a Jew, if you were part of Israel, who were the bad guys? The Gentiles were. And if you were to read the Old Testament, if you read Isaiah 59, where God says he puts on his breastplate of righteousness and he goes to war, who does God fight? the coastlands, the Gentiles. But now, according to Paul and according to the gospel, Jesus Christ has torn down the wall of hostility between all people. And in the place of two men, he has created one new man that God preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near, to the Gentiles and to the Jew, to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And that is the new humanity, the new people of God is all who call upon the name of the Lord. And so what Paul is reminding his audience is he's saying, the battle that you and I fight is not based on racial lines. You can't just look at the Gentiles and think they're the bad guys. Now they're your brothers. You can't just look at different racial groups and say they're the bad guys. You can't mistake people with a different skin color and think they're the bad guys because we don't fight against what? Flesh and blood. We do fight against evil demonic forces in this world, but it's not people. Jesus teaches us to pray for our enemies. You know, friends, this is why racism is an anti-gospel message. This is why white supremacy is anti-gospel. It's wrong about the problem in this life and it's wrong about the solution. You know, racism says the problem is, you know, the other racial groups and the solution is separation. Christianity comes along and says something totally opposite. You know what the problem is? Sin in all of our hearts and the demonic forces manipulating us. That's what's wrong with us. Our sin and the devil. 
And what the solution is, is not the separation of all these different people groups, it's what? A new humanity in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel offer. And so what Paul is reminding Christians is he says, remember who your enemy is and who your enemy is not. Our enemy is not other people. Our enemy is the devil. Now, notice what Paul goes on. He says we're fighting this world, even though if we can't see it, it's there. Uh, It's deceptive. It's uh, the schemes of the devil. And he says in verse 13, if you look down, he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to do what? Notice how many times Paul's going to say the word stand. Okay, this is an important key. So the first step of being armed and strong for the battle is knowing who our enemy is and who our enemy is not. The second one is learning to stand firm. Notice what he says, that you may be able to do what? Stand firm in the evil day and having done all to, again, what? Stand firm. And then verse 14, do what? Stand, therefore. What I want you to recognize in Paul's teaching is he's using this analogy of a battle, that you and I are in a spiritual battle, but it's not against other humanities. It's not against other peoples. It's what? It's against spiritual forces in this world, even if we can't see them, right? And then he's going to say, Christian, it's paramount that you understand your role in the battle. He never says, go take the hill. He never says, go on the offensive. Instead, the image that Paul is using is of an army standing in line. And he says, stand firm, withstand the assaults, stand firm. You know, to use uh, maybe a silly football analogy, um, I think what Paul would say using a football analogy is Christ has decisively won the football game, but it's halftime. And he's looking at us, his teammates, and saying, keep playing, but the game is over. I've won. It's 49 to nothing, but you still need to play the second half. Jesus has decisively defeated Satan and the evil forces, but they are still prowling around seeking people to devour. But you and I have a role to play. It's not our job to go fight demons or anything weird like that as much as that would be fun, you know, to dress up and do things like that. But that's not what he's saying. He says, stand firm. Finish the football game. Uh, you know, if you think of an ancient army, I know people don't fight like this anymore in our militaries, but back in the day, you know, you'd form a strong line. And if you think about it, um, the key to an army being strong in a line, if you can visually picture you know, a line of soldiers, you know, um, the key is every soldier has to play his part. Because if one soldier goes down, the line is broken and the enemy can break in. So he says, Christian, Jesus has already won the battle. You are on the battlefield and everybody stand firm. Don't give Satan a foothold. Don't be the weak link in the line of soldiers. Um, You know, many, many years ago, to continue the football analogy, because I love football, um, in 2008, my life changed forever for the good because my football team beat a young man named Tim Tebow in Gainesville, Florida. Maybe you've heard of Tim Tebow. He does a night to shine. And anyway, Tim Tebow's great, except we are, my team beat him. And he cried after the game. And forever, my life has had a little bit more light because of that moment, watching Tim Tebow cry because my team beat him. And I was like, how in the world did we just beat Tim Tebow? He went on to win the Heisman and he went on to win the national championship that year, but we beat him, right? And I was like, how did that happen? And I remember our, you know, coach, he was like, how did you do it? How did you beat Tim Tebow? You know what he said? Well, I noticed that their left guard was a true freshman. 
And so we just ran the football at that true freshman the whole time. And I was like, that's genius. If you don't understand football, what that means is one of the 11 guys had no clue what he was doing. And we, like any good football team, fought at the point of weakness. We didn't go after Tim Tebow. How do you stop Tim Tebow? You can't stop him. You know who you can't stop? The weak left guard. That's how battles are fought. They're not fought at the point of center. They're fought on the side and you break through. So what I want to suggest to you, Christian, is that you and I are in a spiritual battle. And Satan and the demonic forces are fighting, but their goal is to break a weak point in the line. Think about the way Martin Luther uses this analogy. Um, Supposedly, Martin Luther said this. I can't confirm it, but it sounds like Luther, so let's just believe he said it, or would have agreed with it, okay? Supposedly, Luther said this. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of God's truth, except that one little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. To stand firm on all the battleground except that one point of attack is mere flight and disgrace. You know where it matters, where we stand firm? Where we're being attacked. You know, friends, what I want to suggest to you in that analogy is I think the temptation for you and me right now is to live in a post-truth world. If you don't know what that means, it just means that it's just like, you know, that's what you say is true. There is no objective truth. That's just your truth or, you know, who's to say But what the danger is, Christian, is you and I are being tempted to live in a reductionistic version of Christianity. And what I mean by that is if I say, hey, you know, the Bible says the devil's real. And you go, well, do I have to believe in the real devil to be a Christian? What you're doing is you're trying to reduce the teachings of Christianity down to what you think is palatable. And the problem is, is, you know, I can't say, well, yeah, you have to believe in the devil to be a Christian. Is that what we were going to say? No, but just consider this. If you were a soccer coach and I came to you and I said, can I join your soccer team? But before I do, what's the least amount of practice I have to do? And what's the least amount of drills that I have to do to be on the team and start? Would any self-respecting soccer coach want me on their team? No. What would any soccer coach at the World Cup say? Get off my field. I'm looking for players who want to give everything to the team and everything for the goal of winning. If you just want to find the least that you can do to be on the team, guess what? You don't really want to be on the team. Christian, if you engage truth and you say, what's the least I have to believe to really be a Christian? Friend, you're just asking the wrong question. You should be saying, how can I believe all of what God says? That's what it means to have faith. Faith means believing what God says is true, is true. Let me give you some analogies. This comes from a guy named Tim Keller, uh, who uh, unfortunately has pancreatic cancer right now, but um, he pastored in New York City for a long time. Um, You know, his analogy kind of goes like this. When we face a reductionistic temptation to reduce the teachings of Christianity down to what we think is palatable, we do disservice to Christianity, but it's in a deceptive way. 
His example goes something like this. He says, you know, imagine when Christians were first coming to India and sharing the message of Jesus Christ. Imagine when Christians were sharing the gospel to people in the country of India, and the Indians said, I love everything you're saying. I love the idea of a God of love. I love the idea of Jesus. But I don't really believe that all people are created equal in the image of God because our culture says there's such a thing as a caste system. And you can't deny that there's better and worse people, right? I mean, now the Christians in India are faced with a dilemma. What if they believe everything else except what the Bible says about the dignity of all people? Should the church in India just concede that the caste system is true and what the Bible says about people is wrong? Is, okay, let me ask you another way. Is what the Bible says about people being equal the core teaching of Christianity? No, the core teaching is Jesus is Lord. But can you pull out that teaching about humanity and still be faithful to the word? I'll give you another analogy. Um, if the gospel went into a place like Saudi Arabia and people love the message of Jesus and they love the idea of a God who forgives and a God who judges people and sends them to hell and they love the idea of definitive truth but they don't like the idea that women are fully equal in the image of God and women are deserving of things like education, should the church just concede women's rights for the sake of that culture? Well, if they ignored what the Bible said about women, would they still be Christians? Or would you be denying something about the fundamental workings of how Christianity works? You see, Christianity is not just a list of doctrines. It is a comprehensive way of looking at life where Jesus is Lord and it speaks authoritatively to every area of life. Let's go to our country for just a second. People in America, we love the idea of a God of grace and a God of love. Everybody loves to sing Christmas songs. Everybody likes the idea that God forgives. But when the Bible says that God has rules for human sexuality and for gender, for men and women, for marriage. Christians say, well, do I have to believe that part to be a Christian? Can I just concede? Well, now the church, you and I were faced with the teaching. Do we believe the truth of God's word or do we concede on what does it seem to be really the central teaching of the Jesus message anyway? I mean, who's to say the caste system or women's rights or sexuality, all this stuff, isn't that just secondary? You know, what Martin Luther, I think, would say to us is the real dignity and the strength of a soldier is not in the 99 who are just standing firm. It's on the one soldier at the point of attack. Where do you think our culture is attacking the truth of God's word? What Paul says Christians ought to do, right, what he compels us to do is to stand our ground. We're not out here trying to fight the culture war. Jesus has already won. We're not fighting the culture war. What you and I are called to do is to stand firm. So he says that we need to put on defensive mechanisms. How do we stand firm? What does that mean? Well, of course, this is where famously Paul goes through this armor thing, right? And uh, if you were raised in the church as a kid, you probably heard the armor of the Lord as some kind of song, or you dressed up like it as a kid, and there's you know a belt, and there's a breastplate, and there's shoes, and there's a sword. But, you know, people get all tripped up about this. Just because you learned something as a child does not make it childish, okay? So just because you learned about the armor of God as a kid doesn't mean it's childish. But also what I want to suggest to you is that you can also try to find too much meaning in the armor analogy, right? So like, why is it the, you know, breastplate of righteousness? And why is it the helmet of salvation? Well, I don't think Paul's trying to make all of these really nuanced points in all of these things. 
And the reason I say that is because if you read Paul's other writings in like 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells them, put on the breastplate of faith and love. And here he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. So don't get tripped up in the image. It's less important what each thing, you know, is as it is. What is he actually telling Christians to do? How do we stand firm? So how do we do it? We'll look down at verse 14. What's the first thing Christians are to embrace? The truth. How do we know what's true? God's word. How do you stand at the point of attack, Christian? You stand on God's truth. The truth here doesn't just mean that we believe God's truth. It also means that we are people of truth, that we are truth tellers. So there's both an objective and there's a subjective side to this. We are people of the truth. We tell the truth, but we also hold fast to God's truth. And then he talks about being armed with righteousness. And again, there's a dual meaning. God gives us his righteousness and faith in Christ, but we're also called to be people of integrity. Are you a person of integrity? Do you yearn to be righteous, to hold to the truth? That's how you fight against the schemes of the devil. Are you full of integrity? Another way that we defend ourselves is we're always ready to do what? You see that? It's still verse 14, ready to share the gospel of peace. You know, the, the apostle Peter says, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. So Christian, could you ever explain to somebody why you're a Christian? I mean, do you really, do you have a way of giving your testimony? Paul loves to just tell his personal story. Uh, if you don't know how to share the gospel with anybody, uh, friend, hear me, bring a non-Christian friend to Alpha in January and you will learn how to share the gospel. Paul says, Christian, be ready to share your faith, hold to the truth, be a person of integrity. And then of course, the shield is what? The shield is faith. And that doesn't just mean um, having faith. It also means holding to the faith. That word faith right there is like the faith, right? So remember Paul says earlier in Ephesians, there's one Lord, one faith. That is like one message of Christianity that we all believe. There's not like the Presbyterian faith and then there's the Lutheran faith and then there's you know, the Anglican faith. There's one faith in Jesus Christ and we hold to that. And that's our defense. And then of course we put on salvation. You know, hopefully you know that you have been saved. And then finally, Paul gives the only offensive weapon in the whole list, which is a sword. But what's the offensive weapon? It's the word of God. Okay, this is very similar. Our, our battle is not against humanity. What we can use to defend ourselves and to advance the cause is simply God's message in his holy word. And then he finishes up with prayer. So really, those are the only two weapons that you and I have for this spiritual battle. The only two weapons are prayer and God's word, and we're called to stand firm on the line. Um, I'll let uh, Pastor Richard finish up, but I think it's so profound that Paul finishes this section asking for prayer personally, that he would have boldness even though he's in prison. So let me just finish up with this. So um, do you know where you are right now? Anybody? Some of you are awake, which is great. Thank you. Do you know where you are right now? You're not at church. Mm -mm. You're at war. Whether you know it or not, you and I, we are involved in a spiritual battle. You're at war. And if you don't believe me, that's just proof that you're experiencing the fog of war. Soldiers have you know, talked about this for a long, long time. The idea of the fog of war it means in the middle of the battle, right? In the midst of the battle, you lose tactical awareness. You lose situational awareness and you're just in the fog of war. 
And I think a lot of Christians right now are in the fog of spiritual battle. We don't know what to believe is true. We don't know who to believe. We don't know what we should concede to culture and what we should stand firm on. And friends, if you're doubting the truth of God's word, you're in the midst of the fog of war. You know, um, last night I got the great privilege to do a wedding and uh, it was up in Azalea, Oregon. Anybody been to Azalea, Oregon? If you have uh, driven north on I-5, you've probably passed Azalea. It's just south of Roseburg. And, um, you know, we were driving up as a family to go do the wedding and it was a beautiful wedding uh, for a church member. And, uh, you know, as we get into Grants Pass though, all of a sudden, you know what we entered? Fog. It was like, we just, I don't know, we landed on like Mars or something. It was just like fog everywhere. And, you know, it just went on and on and on for like 30 minutes. We were driving in fog. And I guess just intuitively, I was like, I guess the day's over. I guess like I missed that day because it's all dark. And then guess what happened? When you pass Grant's Pass, what happens? You finally go so high that it's like, oh, we broke through the fog. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been driving in the fog? All of a sudden you get out of the fog and you're like, it's still day. And I'm like, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) Why did I think the day was over? And the sun is like so bright and there's not another cloud in the sky. It was just fog in the valley. Uh, Friends, I want you to hold, have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been driving around here and all of a sudden you got above the fog line? You know, I feel bad for, you know, Caroline and Eloise because I was like, turn around, turn your heads around, look at the fog. Friends, I want you to have that image in your mind of fog in the valley. And friends, that's like the world you and I live in. We live in the fog of a spiritual war. We misidentify who the enemies are. We think the enemies are other people. We, we misthink about what the gospel is. We're deceived by the schemes of the devil. We're, we're trying to embrace this re- reductionistic version of Christianity. And instead, what we need to be doing is finding everything that we have to the Lord, holding to his word, holding to prayer as our weapons, loving our enemies, not seeing people on the other side of the aisle as the enemies, but loving them. Christian, you need to sort of climb to the heights, ascend to the top of the mountain. What does Paul say? You have been raised with Christ and you are seated in the heavenly places. Remember, you have a soul and it has been raised to new heights where you can see the burning light of God's word and his truth. So Christian, be strengthened in the light of God's word. Know who your enemy is and who your enemy is not. Can you identify the point of attack in your life where Satan is trying to get a foothold? Christian, once you go up to the top, once you are strengthened, you and I are called back to descend that treacherous mountain into the fog and to hold the line. Friends, that's an invitation to join the fight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you that you have torn down in your body on the cross all the walls of hostility between all peoples. And Father, would we know your heart and your love for all people? Father, would we rightly identify who our enemy is? Lord, we thank you that you have crushed the head of the serpent, that you have disarmed the rulers and the principalities of this world. And so, Lord, at the point of attack in our lives, Lord, would we hold the line and stand firm? Lord, would we look to you for strength and not rely on our wisdom, our intelligence, but rely on your word and your Holy Spirit? Lord, this morning we pray for people who are not able to be with us, especially the families of Shirley Botham in her passing, and also the family 
of Virginia Busby in her passing. Lord, we especially lift to you the Zirkles as they grieve the loss of their mother and grandmother. Lord Jesus, have mercy. And Lord, we thank you that both Shirley and Virginia are celebrating with all the saints in your presence even now. Lord, we pray for those who can't be with us physically and for those who are ill and suffering. We think of Sean McCoy, Clyde Hoffman, Harry Gilg, Gail Johnston, Paul Deller, Randy Templeton, Lynn Toombs, all those who are suffering with illness, looking for diagnoses, those recovering from surgery. Lord, we ask that you would have mercy on each one of them. Lord, that you would give them a hope in a future. And Lord, that you would give them endurance, that you would be with the family as they care for them, as they walk alongside them in their suffering. Lord Jesus, have mercy. And Lord, we lift to you a sister church here in the Rogue Valley. Lord, we pray that they would take up arms, not against other people, but Lord, that they would stand firm on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we lift up to you now First Baptist Church of Ashland. Lord, we pray that you would bless that church mightily. Lord, we thank you that after many, many months and even years of searching for their next pastor, that they have selected Pastor Adam Ingram. Lord, we thank you that he was mentored through First Baptist of Medford. And Lord, we pray a blessing on that church as well. And Lord, we lift to you, Pastor Adam. Lord, would you give him uh, many years here in our valley. And Lord, that you would bless the work of FBC Ashland. And Lord, we pray that you would be at work in our congregation as well for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.